We have, oh dear gods, that signature. <laughs> what signature? <laughs> Patty Heaney's latest signature. A baby seal walks into a club. <laughs> <laughs> Patty, we love you. But you need help, seriously. <laughs> There's only one kind of help for that sort of thing. Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance. A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations. Listener discretion is advised. And now, dealing in episode six, part one of what may be three episodes for this one. Hello, 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 and welcome to episode six of Dealing In. Dealing In is the feedback show for the fiction of me, J. Daniel Sawyer. The current novel, Predestination, is a serial that has a lot of suspense and turns on surprises. If you have not listened up through episode 17, stop! Wait! No! Go back and listen now. Heavy spoilers will be covered in the following news and feedback. And with me tonight is Chris Lester of the Metamore City Podcast. Hey, gang. Good to be back. And Kitty Nakian, who plays Hera Flea, daughter of Heretic on the Polly's Cosmetic Reprobates Hour, and is the co-producer of Antithesis. Meow. All right. From Twitter. AJ Downs. Found you through Etheria since the, the sex roundtable discussions. Now catching up on Antithesis. Loving it so far. Excellent, thank you. And uh, in answer to a lot of other people's queries about that, including one by Kim the Comic Book Goddess tonight, which sounded suspiciously like a threat of an S&M scene, the final part of the sex round table will be posted sometime early next week. I'm going to get it out to everyone for review this weekend, and it'll be out early next week, and you guys can hear the rest of the racy conversation. All right. Tristan P.E.J. via Twitter. He's, this is part of a conversation that he and I were having about uh, Antithesis. And he says, seriously, that's one of the reasons I really love Antithesis. I see the beginnings of it becoming a classic. Woot! Thank you. Hopefully that's not just because I gave him detailed world-building advice last time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And here's one from Trucker Rich. I'm almost caught up on the story. I think I just listened to episode 14. Can't wait for more. Hope to put Hope to put up on my blog soon. Um uh, and he follows up with and the story is totally awesome. I met Trucker Rich at the last um at the last uh, pub crawl and dude is really cool and he gave me an amazing write up on his blog. Trucker Rich says, "I am totally blown away by the brilliance of the authors I post on my site." Dan Sawyer's story has me floored with awe. He has been developing his story since he was a teenager, refining them as he has aged and gained worldly knowledge. Amazing characters and plot mixed together with a talented voice cast. Dan showed his brilliance again, putting it all together with music and sound effects. Altogether, a wonderful work of art that I will be waiting for each week to drop into my iTunes feed. Thank you. I'm bouncing, which looks... Just as incongruous as it sounds. <laughs> There's squeaking of the chair. <laughs> okay, um, here's one from 
P. Charing or P.C. Herring? Yeah, Paul Herring. Okay. Author of Cybrosis, in, I mean, right. in which all of us have bit parts. Boot. Uh, I play the bad guy. I play the security guard. Dan! <clears throat> Exclamation point. Sorry this is so late in getting to you, but I've been behind on my podcasts, and I didn't get caught up on Antithesis until just a little while ago. In a word, Wow! Your storytelling is amazing, and the production values of the podcast are working wonders in the delivery. I know it's a lot of work, but please keep it up. I love your cast. They're all very well selected, and their voices fit the roles you've placed them in. Again, well done. As far as the story itself, I don't have too much to say that hasn't already been said in other feedback. You've definitely hooked me up, and I can't wait to hear how this whole thing plays out. Right now, the one lingering question on my mind is why Senator Shelley needs to go through this whole public production in order to force himself to change his mind on lunar policy. <laughs> oh, and when you find out the answer, you're going to be so surprised. This, of course, presumes that someone else we haven't yet seen isn't pulling Shelley's strings. Also, I don't know why. This is why I have that is why I have no rational reason but I'm really pulling for the Hartmans and hoping they'll find a way to reconcile and get back together. I'm still not sure what to make of the Cassie slash Jade slash Reeves slash Joss situation, but for now I'm content to sit back and watch that play out as the hopefully inevitable bloodbath comes to a head. <laughs> oh boy, the next few weeks are going to be so much fun. <laughs> Mind you, I know that you won't be revealing anything in response to this feedback, and I now realize that these questions might not be fully answered in book one, which means you may end up becoming the biggest cliffhangering bastard of all time. And unseating Hutch. Take skill. Oh, right. yes. Well, um, Hutch, if you're listening, you're toast, man. <laughs> I, Chris, you've read the end of, of book one. I love it. I Good cliffhanger. It. Good cliffhanger. You guys are going to hate me. You're going to hate me so much. But you will that means you will show up for September 9th, 2009 when Chris Lester, myself and Pip do a triple threat. We all debut our new novels at the same time. That's right. And uh I would have to say that it's it's a cliffhanger in the same way that Empire Strikes Back is a cliffhanger. I mean, it's it's an emotionally satisfying stopping point, but you really are going to want to see what happens next. <laughs> so, yeah, I've got a lot of writing to do before then. Ah, so do you, man. Oh, heavens. Uh, no kidding. Pip is the only one. Pip, Pip's actually got her novel done. She's That's podcasting right. digital magic. Mm -hmm. Saucy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> PC closes out his, his email by saying, all right, I'm out. It's game night tonight. I've got decks to stack and dice to file down. I wonder how many members of his gaming group listen to this show. <laughs> hey, if you're the game master, you don't need to pretend to cheat. <laughs> Just do it by fiat. Ah, <laughs> uh, Shades of Death by Cliché. Which, by the way, playtesting.net. Oh my absolutely gosh, that fucking is hysterical. Oh, it, it, I... I about died laughing listening to the first episode <laughs> go kitty okay and um mg katie says your voice is very 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 nice Ooh, thank you but what about mine katie <laughs> hey i'm reading his twitter feedback not yours <laughs> uh, we'll have to wait for mine later then <laughs> 
Don't worry, one of the emails later, someone compared and contrast between which of us has a sexier voice when we're sick. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, feedback from Gail Carriger. Dealing in five is driving me bonkers. I keep yelling historical facts at the podcast regarding UK Kiwis. Screw this fiction mumbo-jumbo. You, you and Aetherius should podcast an intellectual salon. I so want to be on board. Oh, Gail, 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 we're going to do that. Probably in the, uh, in the lull between, uh, and between, uh, predestination and down from 10. We've got to get together and do that intellectual salon with you. Oh, yes. That, that, so fucking rock. Gail Carriger and her harem of Armenian lovers. By the way, Gail Carriger. <laughs> Oh, that's what it says in her author bio. She sold her first book to Orbitz, actually her first two books. The first one is called Soulless. It comes out next November, and it should be quite fun. It's a Victorian comedy of manners about a uh, zombie hunter, female zombie hunter. I can't wait. <laughs> and uh, as far as yelling Kiwi historical facts at the radio, please, next time, send them in. Correct us. Yes. Better yet, send them in. Correct Pip, because she's the native and she should know better. <laughs> <laughs> as if we know anything about our own country. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay, this one is also from Mildred Katie. Hi there. I'm in the middle of a major cleanup and decluttering in time for guests, so I probably won't get a chance to record this in time for you tonight. Rather than the regular feedback, I figured I'd threaten you. Besides, you <laughs> haven't gotten enough death threats. Yes! Death threats! Thank you! I will kill you, Dan, for all of the atrocities that you visited on your characters for creating the cynical and pessimistic world setting where individuals work behind the scenes can bring about the ruin of freedom and the potential of lasting happiness. You will die. Not only do you make the lives of your characters horrible, but you consistently make the lives of your listeners an everlasting hell. For we sit by our podcatchers every weekend and wait with shallow breaths for the next episode to start downloading like strung out addicts waiting for the next hit to arrive. For this, I will kill you. Slowly. Deliberately. Drawing out the pain in ways that only Percy will understand. <laughs> And Dan, sleeping in an armchair with a gun won't save you like it has Joss in the past. I will kill you, Dan. Or just give you a couple of bottles of good New York wine and get to you that way. Giggle. <laughs> oh, there, yes, death threats, I love them. <laughs> it may it shows that you really care if you care enough about the story to threaten my life over it and yeah i am really really sorry about that long gap when i started out doing this i i had all the actors pre-record their lines and i figured hey i can record my narration as i go along not banking on the fact that even a minor cold is enough to fuck up your voice enough that you're not in narrating shape. Oh, yes. Particularly Goodness. if you're an anal retentive son of a bitch like some bearded podcast authors I know that wear fedoras a lot and, uh, are not anyway, yes, and are not named Chris. <laughs> I'm not that picky. If my voice goes bad, you guys just have to live with it. Yeah. So anyway, um,. But I am that picky. So with Down From 10, guess who's recording all his narration before he edits episode one? 
See, he can be taught. <laughs> Believe it or not. <laughs> oh, where am I? Okay, um, next right one. Next to me. Oh, cuddle pile on the couch. Okay, um, Indiana Jim says, Equipment, resonance, reading to convey the emotion of the scene. Dan Sawyer's antithesis is a clinic on that. Mm, thank you. It's true. I, I, you, you definitely have a talent for conveying the emotion of the, the scene through the way that you read the narrative. Thank you. That's actually very important to me. Um, yeah. And uh, Indiana, I, by the way, I just started Codename Starkeeper, which was Indiana Jim's fan I fiction. I love that. It's good. I have totally, really I've is. avoided it because it is fan fiction, right? And I just avoid fan fiction usually on principle, but it's really good. And that's at podcast.indianajim.net. Ding! Ding! <laughs> and uh, evidently I'm going to be come on, coming on to co-host with him at some point in the near future. He had to make me promise that I wouldn't swear or talk about politics or theology or sex or violence. What else is there going to be for you to talk about? Toes. <laughs> <laughs> Food? Um, so it should be an interesting time. You guys might uh, hear what I sound like when I'm trying to behave myself, which doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I'd be interested to hear that. <laughs> I mean, normally I try to behave myself badly, and I do very well at that. But um, behaving myself in a PG fashion, that's going to be interesting. I'll Best let you luck with that, Jimbo. <laughs> I'll let you guys know when it happens so you can come over and listen to me fall flat on my face in front of the great Fedorid podcaster. The other great Fedorid podcaster. It's going to end up Fedorid sounding like face. that episode of Into the Blender where Chooch and Viv were talking about uh, their the his experience with the... Uh, <laughs> The, the, the bunker the that shall not be named. Uh -huh. Yes, the secret installation. And they have yeah. kept having to bleep out everything mm -hmm. in order to hide all the sensitive yeah. info it's, he was It's probably not a good idea when you have military security clearance to go on your podcast talking about things that you're cleared to know that we're not. <laughs> Or at least, well, at least they had enough presence of mind to bleep it out. <laughs> no, that's true. But, I mean, talk about a cruel tease. I'm sitting here going, okay, where do they live? Now, how can I locate that base? Because it's obvious from the context what it's got to contain. Because <laughs> I'm just mm. that kind of... Paranoid. <laughs> no, no, I'm just insatiably curious. Mm -hmm. We have here a live... Skype message from Noble Bear. Ooh. He says, Tell Dan that I have a greater appreciation for Senator Shelley's value of independence now. Actually, seeing him drowning his remorse in bourbon sold me, though perhaps it was just getting to hear the narration from his perspective for the first time. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I was wondering what that would do. And by the way, that is the last clue you guys get for the What the Hell is Senator Shelley Up To contest. You've got a week after this episode drops before I'm closing the contest because the clues coming after that will totally give it away. So you've got a week to send in your theories about what the hell Senator Shelley is up to, and the one who is closest to the truth gets a t-shirt. But Bill is Bill is an interesting guy, and he's there's more to him than the psycho. What was it that Mildred called him the first couple of weeks? That right psychopathic bastard that he seems to be. Okay, I've got a, a uh, 
a Twitter feedback from A. Garen. Kindle version plus character slash setting list in PDF or HTML would be great for notoriously distracted and multitasking podcast listeners. Not that we know anyone like that, Amy. No. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. I just have something in my throat. <laughs> she pitched this to me the other day. She suggested I have a downloadable Dramatis Personae so that uh, people who aren't used to keeping up with stories this complex can do so. She also said, I really want a Kindle version. And I'm like, no, not yet. I want to make sure the publishing deal falls apart first. But uh, at the moment, uh, the publishing deal is waiting on my proofreader to get the manuscript back to me so that I can send the full manuscript into the publisher. So it'll be a while yet before there's a Kindle version. But um, a PDF Dramatis Persona is a good idea, and I may do it after the book ends and make it available on the site and on Podio Books as well. From Calliopeo, uh, we have several tweets. Um, mainlining antithesis and enjoying your sexy, sexy voice. Ooh. Also says, I'm reading Elizabeth Moon's Vata series at the same time as antithesis. My mind is swimming with space stations and interstellar conspiracy. <laughs> so I'm listening to episode 14 and watching Casey follow Reeves into the church, not knowing that he is in charge of the rebellion. Sitcom! <laughs> Hey, the, the, the rules of comedy and the rules of drama, or actually it's the rules of comedy and horror, but this kind of drama almost qualifies. The basic difference between comedy and suspense-driven drama is the lighting. <laughs> <laughs> and the laugh track. Right. As Buffy proved, by crossing mm -hmm. over the two quite naturally. Yeah, and Scream. And also says, I'm listening to you and Chris Lester shoot the shit on poop right now. We'll see if my boss lets me get up to episode 15 today. <laughs> Did we talk about poop? I don't remember talking about poop. I don't remember you guys talking about poop. Mm. Maybe, oh. maybe it's a euphemism for something. Well, I know that we, I ta we talked about being grade-A bullshit artists. Oh, that must be it. Could be. Ah, okay. And also says, you're killing me with episode 15. Wanted to scream at Cassie. Now I'm caught up and have to wait like everyone else. Oh, and then what you waited for. Oh, it was bad of me. I was a bad, bad author. You should be punished. <laughs> and um, finally, uh, another death threat. Got some good death threats from Masada. I'll come to your house, flay you alive, and cut off your head with your own sword. If you have one. How did you know I had a sword? Who wouldn't guess that you had a sword? Good grief. <laughs> What's that look for, Chris? <laughs> Just. <laughs> I have to have a sword. I never know. And I keep it sharp because I never know when I'm going to have to bisect a head of lettuce for Foley. <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's for Foley. Sadly, that is the reason he got it. Well, actually, I got it to make a movie, but I discovered it was really good for chopping lettuce. <laughs> No, That's I'm why having, he got a real one. I'm having flashbacks to the <laughs> first, and this is going to date me, to that to the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles live action film. Oh my god, you actually watched I'm it. I'm so sorry. I was a kid at the time, <laughs> but there's this scene where Casey Ignorance Jones... Ignorance is not a defense. It's one of the basic 
legal principles in English common law. <laughs> but yes, there's a scene where Casey Jones has got Leonardo's katana and he's using it to chop vegetables. So. <laughs> Ah, yes. My house is a veritable armory full of interesting little things. <laughs> Just looking around for the spring wires or something. <laughs> They're in the bedroom with all the other toys. <laughs> Shh. Okay. <clears throat> From Patty Heaney Pillow. Howdy, howdy, howdy. And she's not drunk this time. First, please smack Uncle Lester, Chris, over the head for his I Hate History co- statement on Dealing In Episode 5 Kitty, at one o six thirty six. if you really want to check. Kitty, you're nearest him. Can you smack him for me, please? Ow. <laughs> I realize it's easy to be afraid of that which you may not understand, but since when was something hateful because it was messy? Last I checked, that was at least half the fun. <laughs> certainly true for some things okay um allow me to clarify patty here's a shovel chris you may need it (laughs) it is not history per se that i hate it is the fact that people create the pretense of actually knowing what the hell happened even 30 years ago much less 2000 years ago (laughs) and talk about it as if they know Because we don't. We have no idea what's going on right now. There's too much information that it is just falling through the cracks. And doubly so every year that things age. And so you've got historians out there who are presenting these stories. That's where the term comes from. Historian. (laughs) They present a, a historical narrative that attempts to put in context what is utter chaos while it's happening in the thought that they can then somehow connect the dots of cause and effect. And the extent to which this then gets repeated as if it were factual, verifiable, empirical information on an order with (laughs) provable scientific fact is utter, complete bullshit. I take it you've not actually taken classes on critical history. I've taken history, enough history classes to see the way that the history way, the way gets that, twisted. Yeah, the way in, that history gets taught to college students, totally different than the actual discipline of history. Oh, sure. But that's the same way that it is with a lot of things. You know, the, the stuff that actually filters down to the mm. masses is... Yeah. You know, bears no resemblance to reality. Uh, check out the next episode of Reprobates Hour. I've got a critical historian on talking about how we know what we know about Rome and what we don't know that people think we know. Uh huh. And particularly about how uh, about how science developed in the Greek and Roman worlds. Yeah, there's some interesting little uh, little tidbits there. Yeah, poor hero of Ex- Alexandria, probably the mm-hmm. most clueless genius who ever lived. <laughs> he developed the freaking steam engine and used it as a child's toy. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. That's off my chest. All righty. <laughs> Kitty's fondling his chest. Just making sure it's all the way off. Alrighty, since you didn't get nearly as many smart-ass feedbacks as Chris of the Flowing Locks last time, (laughs) 
I'm going to make this a long one. Tee hee hee. Long one. Sorry if it seems a bit disjointed at times. I had to leave and come back to it if more than a few times. Last via back show, I commented on using my on my using Admiral Nelson's spice drum because I enjoyed the irony. Admiral Horatio Nelson died at Trafalgar, which is a fair ways away from his native England. Since he was such a great hero, his men decided that they would preserve his remains and ship them back to London for a proper burial. Now, most reliable accounts state that his body was placed in an empty wooden barrel with myrrh and camphor salts. But the popular account says that he was placed in a rum barrel that was then topped off, effectively pickling him for the journey home. <laughs> so, Admiral Nelson spiced rum. Seriously. <laughs> See? And you, sit, you wonder why I hate history. <laughs> Sounds tasty. The very fact that these... Anyway. <laughs> In answer to your questions... In answer to your questions regarding my online handle, Azure Storm Eater, I have CC'd my husband. Ask him. <clears throat> I may have to reply to her on that one. <laughs> her husband's email address shows up in the CC line simply with the nickname Boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Exactly. <laughs> Except without the O. No, I'm not going there. <laughs> Chicken. Alaska. He's going to Alaska. I've still got to edit that conversation, too. Uh, there's yet another special feature coming out with Pip Ballantyne and Chris Lester going on and on about Chicken Alaska. Mm-hmm. Not to mention part three of, of the, the sex, show, sex right, show. Which I mentioned already. Next, a few comments on your predictions for the Webernet. Since you're apparently... a <laughs> Oh, boy. Is that like David? <laughs> Since you're apparently of the new tech order of geekdom, I think it's fair to go so far off the topic of the book itself. If I'm wrong, feel free to edit the email. Gods know that I've taken up enough feedback episode time already. Gee, you think? <laughs> I think this is going to be a two-parter. I think you're getting a bit ahead of yourself production-wise. We still don't know what a worldwide internet will look like. Heck, most people don't access sites outside of their native language, and those that do rely on woefully inadequate translator bots that usually cause more confusion than they resolve. I've met more than my fair share of people that don't access sites outside their home nation. Sad, but true. On the flip side, I have the pleasure of being related to some of the geeks that developed what is now the internet, and I can tell you that they never saw this coming. I know. I also have to call shenanigans on those technology predictions, in particular with gatekeeper technology. Assuming, for the moment, that the domain of private servers will collapse and that the web gods will refuse to branch, slash out, branch out slash share their limitless power, it's still kind of bad to believe that we can't exceed the levels of speed we've already reached in transplanetary communication. <laughs> I'm not saying someone's going to produce an Ansible anytime soon, but there's been some rather encouraging work in the FTL communications world, most notably in studies that accelerate radio waves and lots of research devoted to quantum tunneling. Okay. Um, Big Daddy Einstein was a cantankerous son of a bitch, but he did 
correctly deduce a universal speed limit. Now, you're right that there has been a lot of progress with quantum tunneling for communications. Whether or not it's actually going to turn out to be economically viable and or scalable for large quantities of information is a very suspiciously open question. As far as the gatekeepers problem, there's actually an interesting way around that. Um, and since I haven't gotten to this point, um, the, the, the communications infrastructure comes in very important in book three, which I'm still working on. But, um, if you listen to the latest episode or sorry, four episodes back of econ talk with Eric Raymond, he goes, um, goes off on quite a long tangent about 30 minutes in where he talks about the collapse of the choke point domain servers and the rise of the parallel web, which is something that a tech company that I'm part owner in actually is working on. And it's very exciting stuff. And depending on what's dramatically necessary for the book, I may implement it in the world of antithesis as well. So, while your predictions work pretty well with what we have at the moment, I have to believe that there's going to be some major changes in the works, and the likes of you and I will never see it coming. Scratch out that you, Patty, I just have to say. <laughs> the current environment may find itself radically changed if we shift from centralized service to individual systems, or from a passive to an active information resource, and not entirely in a viral sense, or any number of as-yet science fiction-y concepts. Heck, how much different would things be if we were accessing our data and communications from nanites floating around in our brains? For that matter, will zombies put out be put out by nanite-flavored brains? We can only hope. Now for the social side of it. Again, I have to agree with your comments as far as technology currently stands. But that matter... For that matter, the whole settlement sociology discussion struck me as pretty damn awesome. But and you knew there had to be a but, there's still a pretty big unknown factor. While we can assume people will be people, close-minded assholes will still be close-minded assholes, and establishments will always be establishments, how they operate is bound to become much more interesting in the near future. Who could have imagined that an army would keep weapons of extraordinary power, nukes, for the purpose of not using them in aggression, mutually assured destructions, in Napoleon's time? What founding father could have known that the country he was forming could have a voting population complete with at least a rudimentary education, gross knowledge of the issues and candidates, and the ability to get to a polling location that encompassed the entire adult population of the country? Well, you're right about the gross part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you beat me to it. As you so rightly pointed out, technology has a wacky way of interacting with society. Sometimes we can see the changes coming, but the truly profound stuff... Stirrups, iron plows, steam engines, have a way of smacking us like the bad, bad monkeys we are. Now we're staring down the muzzle of some truly profound innovations that are flying at us so quickly that most people don't even have time to read about them, let alone adjust. I'm not entirely sure we've worked out all the kinks of being a car society, and we've had quite a while to work on that one. So I'm pretty confident that the changes being wrought by new tech to human society, human consciousness, and, and zombies has yet to be fully realized. Maybe we'll keep going the way we have been going, but then maybe we're just looking at the stopgaps made by a startled human race to buy us the time we need to figure out what to do with all the new toys. Maybe we're going to invent new and surprisingly evil ways of slapping down the creative and hopeful, but let's hope not. I actually kind of doubt that last bit, but no, you're right about, uh, you're right in the main about just about all of that. 
Um, I'm very aware of the tech coming down the pipe and the fact that in 20 years, this book will be laughably obsolete in the same way that uh, fiction about colonizing Venus that was exciting in the 50s became laughingly obsolete in the 60s when we sent our first probes there. A good story, though, is still a good story, but I chose to do it this way for two very important reasons. One, I'm a big fan of space travel and... Assuming that we never progress um, too faster than light communications, we still have within our technological grasp just about everything that you see in antithesis. So it's a projection outwards from now, assuming only breakthroughs that we know are theoretically possible. Because I think we're at such a point now that it's actually, even if we don't overturn the laws of physics again, which we probably will, it's still a thing worth doing, getting off this planet and exploring the cosmos. Because, as Douglas Adams said, space is big. You just really won't big. believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. Yes. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Exactly. And as J. Michael Straczynski said, ask ten different scientists about the environment or um, planetary hunger or um, long-term planning of any kind, and you'll get 10 different answers. But the one thing they all agree on, one day our sun will go cold and go out. And when it does that, it won't just take us. It'll take Marilyn Monroe and Lao Tzu and Buddy Holly and everything we've ever done. And all of it goes away unless we go to the stars. So that's one of the reasons I chose to do it this way. The other way, the other reason is that I know enough about what's coming to know that I don't want to spend my time trying to figure out how we're going to adapt to it. I'm not that smart. <laughs> and, and that's saying something, folks. A lot of the a lot of the post-singularity fiction that really seriously tries to tackle this stuff gets as good as it is, it gets lost in the tech because the changes coming are so amazingly profound that any fiction that does justice to the changes that are coming won't uh, doesn't have the emotional resonance that fiction should have with an audience in my opinion. And so I decided to posit a world where all these changes that are coming down the pipe happen, but the market selectively knocks them out. We don't want them in the ways that they to do the things that they have the potential to do. So they're all still around cyborgs, nanites, life extension technologies, uploads, cryogenics. It's all around. It all works, but not everyone's using it. And the people that are using it are using it piecemeal. And um, it's, yeah, it's kind of a wussing out, but it is actually a possible way that things will go. No one's going to impose life extension on people. Quite the opposite, Quite actually. <laughs> nah, no one's, well, no, people try to impose life extending medical technologies on each other right now. Um, no, but eventually no one's going to be able to impose life extension on people and you're going to have the future equivalents of the Seventh-day Adventists and you're going to, or sorry, the, um, the, Christian, the, scientists. the Christian scientists. Sorry, Seventh-day Adventists. Right. <laughs> and, um, you're going to have the transhumanists and you're going to have everyone in between. We're going to have uh, parallel evolution uh, for people that want their descendants to live in space. 
So take the requisite steps to genetically engineer their children to be optimized for space travel. This is all going to happen, and all of these things do eventually show up in the world of antithesis, but not everyone is going to adopt them, and it's going to take a while before they become mainstream. And, of course, there's also separation by class. Um, the, uh, you know, when I, I think of Richard K. Morgan's stories in the Altered Carbon Universe, which is an excellent but extremely violent series that I, I recommend for anybody who's interested in political fiction, um, where you have a rich upper class that are using upload technology to render themselves effectively mm -hmm. immortal, while all the schlubs down at the you know, the plebeian level just live their one life and they right. die. Yeah, I and I actually find that um, that scenario to be completely improbable. The, really? Yeah. Well, the it rests upon an assumption of Marxist Marxist social theory that has proved time and again to be completely false. The proliferation of technology and the ubiquitization of technology means that. You and I can build particle accelerators if we wanted to. In this room, we can genetically engineer things if we want to with normal tools. There's a, there are sites on the Internet for people who do genetic engineering in their garages. The tools, the ubiquitization of technology that enables, enables people who invent it, who market it, who do business in it to acquire vast sums of wealth also ensures that they can't keep it from anybody who's sufficiently motivated. Um, and it's just, you can't turn that back short of a global market collapse followed by a global famine followed by global collapse of Western democracies. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, this, the societies that Morgan is writing about are all pretty much police states right. that are held under control by the threat of massive violence on the part of the UN. So, mm. Yeah, in that kind of situation, history shows time and again is not sustainable. Probably not, but it's sustainable on the timescales that he's writing a story about. Yeah, the, the, most, the, the longest time a state like that has ever been sustained is the Soviet Union. And that was uncommonly long for a dictatorship to last. Um, I, in fact, I think one of the only reasons it lasted as long as it did was it had us for an enemy. <laughs> You're probably right about that. But anyway, that's Marxist social theory does not show up in my books because it is wrong. If it was right, I would exploit it because it has amazing dramatic potential. But it's wrong. Marx was wrong on everything except the fact that there is a constant temporal battle between the haves and the have-nots. Right. He was right about that. That will always be the case because envy and uh, social climbing are part of human nature. But what he made out of that is absolutely incorrect. You heard it here first. Okay, Patty continues. Of course, I realize this entire argument, other than being profoundly geeky, is so hypothetical that writing about it to you is just an exercise in being contrary. <laughs> but still, no. <laughs> makes for good discussion fodder. And it has. On a less hypothetical note, you left out a pretty big factor in your discussion on information gatekeepers. Most people don't want the entire story. Sounds awful, but if someone That's asks true. me 
What did people wear in medieval France? They're looking for a two or three word answer, not the 40 minute lecture that would more accurately answer the question. Similarly, if I'm looking at elections, I don't want to know what the candidate eats for his average breakfast or a detailed accounting of his senatorial voting history. I want the gist. Furthermore, I want the gist compiled by people who share my viewpoints mostly because they want to know the same things I do. While that may make me an irresponsible voter, not looking at it from both sides, there's always going to be that limit to the amount of data any one person can handle on any given issue. Some people choose to devote more of their time to some issues than others, and they are typically the ones who pare down the information for the rest of us. It's not really censorship, it's a response to information overload. Another lovely side effect brought to you by the Information Age, <laughs> and by Q, R, and the number pi. <laughs> now, information overload is a fun and interesting problem, and a lot of us have already hit it. Um, it's... The but the the typical response to information overload is to retreat to what's familiar and sometimes we run away screaming from it. Right and and I mean I know I'm an opinionated jackass about this, but there's voting and then there's actually understanding what's going on as best as anyone possibly can. Um, now people who who have good understandings can and will continue to always disagree. That's healthy. Um, but I'm. I just can't I just can't have truck with party line thinking. I don't like it. Um even the notion that there are two sides to any issue I think is bullshit. Some well, no, of course, as the Vorlons told us that there are three sides. At to least, it. yeah. <laughs> Your side, their side and the truth. Sometimes there are 10 or 15 sides to an issue because you've got the um you've got the equivalent of the Buddhist parable of the blind men and the elephant going on. And sometimes there is simply one side to the story. Like um, terrorists ran the planes into the World Trade Center. Sorry, that's the only side to the story there is, guys. There is no conspiracy there. Well, aside from the conspiracy among religious nuts to bring down two giant towers. And sometimes there are two sides, but the idea that that truth comes prepackaged in either a Republican or a Democrat alternative or whatever your local political parties are is... Um, a convenient fiction that's become a convention because it's formulated by party line thinkers who only see things in those terms. And it's allowed the parties to maintain their domination over mm -hmm. the political minds of America, such yep. as they are. Yeah, and each each party's got its good points, each party's got its awful points, but one thing all politicians have in common is the desire to stay in power whether they're people of good conscience or people of ill conscience. And that's why our system is rigged to not work very well. <laughs> because we have the power to get rid of them if they piss us off sufficiently. And their system is set up to slow them down enough that we have time to do that if they're on a runaway <laughs> course. Like certain recent presidents I could think of. Um, um, pretty much all of them. Yeah, all of since the ones since Roosevelt the first. Uh, I think. Well, Roosevelt the first had his own problems. But anyway, that's a long and long conversation that'll lose me more listeners. So, um, <laughs> hey, next, I found a neat trick that I can do with the title of the book. Check it out. Antithesis, book one: Predestination and other games of chance. Ten syllables, nine words. A science fiction spy novel. Eight syllables, five words. All right, it's less of a trick and more of a commentary on your predisposition towards verbose nomenclature. 
don't get me wrong, it's damned clever and sounds really cool. But dude, if you're trying to get this published, less is more. I resent your implication that my predilection towards verbosity comes through in any sort of public forum. <laughs> On to Percy. I can't say I like him, or that he's one of my fave characters, but I can see where others might enjoy him. Think of it this way. Boba Fett, Dracula, and a lot of other villains end up being wildly popular. Sometimes you just gotta root for the cool bad guy. Or for the guy who knows how to put a sticky smile on a woman's face. That is, before carving her up. Probably a combination of both. (laughs) He would be really popular in some S&M dungeons I've heard of. On to new business. I'm sorry to say that Chris's sick voice is significantly hotter than your own. Well, not really oh. sorry, since I got to listen in and compare. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have to have a healthy set of pipes to be all seductive. Next, I can't figure out if Cassie is your dream woman who you view with worship or the exact opposite. <laughs> The amount, uh, the amount of crap that you put her through leads me to believe that it can't be anything in the middle. <laughs> we only hurt the ones we love, or the ones we despise, if we're lucky. So, which is it? <laughs> it's actually neither. Gasp. Gasp. I have known Cassie in various guises throughout the years. She is a fascinating character every time I meet her, and I couldn't resist having her in the story. But no, um, I I love all of the characters in Predestination, and um, they all walk through hell, and uh, some of them walk a long way through hell. Actually, Michael Spence sent in a comment on this point, which I think I'm going to play right now. Make fun of me, huh? Like I need more of that. Hi, Dan and Kitty and everyone. Uh, this is Michael Spence. I've been I'm caught up, I think, except for the two episodes you said were uh, going up this week. And this is, I guess what I'm about to give you is, is what I would put in a review, but I would kind of like to have your, uh, your response to it. And that is, I'm, as you can tell, I am closely following Antithesis, which is, uh, which is kind of interesting because on the one hand, I love the world building. It is uh, you do an excellent job of bringing everything out in such detail that I feel as though yes, this is plausible, and I could live there. On the other hand, good grief, man! There is there is is there no joy, no happiness whatsoever that doesn't go unpunished. I mean, don't try and uh, get a positive point of view unless you're ready to be tortured in a few minutes by the one you love. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to meet Brittany in a dark alley and rip her limb from limb. Oh. I mean, I'm not sure who else is left that, that that hasn't happened to, either physically or mentally. So anyway, yes, I'm following the story. I would love... I, 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 the world is so well-built that I feel as though I could really live there. The question is... Do I want to? <laughs> Michael, thank you. Michael played the security guard in episode 14. Um, and that's very high praise indeed from you on the world building. I really appreciate that. I don't think that Story- Jade has had anything really terrible happen to her yet. Well, she did get tied up and almost killed. 
Well, the, yeah, but the tying up part, I get the impression that Cassie's done that to her before. <laughs> Chris, I like your imagination. Well, there's a line in there where she's like, you know, she, where where Cassie's like saying, you're on trial and Jade's like, oh, fine, Cass, let's have a trial, thinking it's some sort of DS role play thing. And... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, I maybe it's just that I know too many of your friends, but <laughs> oh, no, it's not DS roleplay. It's uh, Cassie and Jade have a very complicated history, but they were not uh, they were not uh, into S and M together. Um, but um, no, uh, Jade is used to Cassie being very hot tempered and melodramatic. And so at first she doesn't take her very seriously, but um, yeah, it's it's more like a okay, whatever you're pissed off about, let's get it out of your system and go yes. on. Ah, okay, it's more like that. Okay, but um, I misinterpreted that completely. <laughs> well, oh, you, just I, a little. After having listened to Metamore City, I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Oh, but now. Antithesis isn't that dark, is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> I keep oh, looking damn. for a flashlight when I read it. <laughs> um, if it were any darker, we'd be driving at night with sunglasses. <laughs> oh man! But uh, yeah, no, it, it's I don't know. It's the kind of world where I'd like to live. It's just that the people whose eyes we're seeing it through are all in the middle of walking through hell. Mm. Um, I've got a um. There's a literary convention goes all the way back into ancient literature, and I've never heard it given a name, so I've kind of given it my own name. Um, but there's this point in the story where um, a hero has to sit down essentially with Satan, whoever the character playing the satanic role is, and face their true selves, good and bad, in order to be worthy of moving on and becoming a hero. And some characters pass that test and some characters don't. And this is book one of a long series, and these characters are all coming up to the point where they're going to be, either now in book one or sometime in book two, sitting down with their literary Satan and, uh, and having it out about who they really are. And some of them are going to pass those temptations and tests, and some of them aren't. But the road that gets them there is very, very dark. They have to walk through the darkest parts of their own minds, whether it's their fears or their violence or their treacheries or their um, sometimes their loyalties. So he, there's there's joy in the book, but... Yeah, it do, it is tempered by a lot of um a lot of danger and and fear and doubt and other unpleasant dark things, but um I can't say it all turns out well in the end because that would be both lying and spoilery. But uh not all is as dark as it seems at the moment. All right. It's kind of like life. Not yeah. everybody comes out alive. <laughs> but things come out better. Mm. 
As a matter of fact, nobody comes out of life. Well, yeah, not, at least not well, so far. Well, I'm talking about if if you extend life out to a, <laughs> in a 20-year term. Yeah. After 20 years, not everybody you know is going to come out of that 20 years alive, but things will be better overall for most of them. Or what was it Douglas Adams says, or will it turn out to be just like night, just like life, quite nice on its own merits, but no substitute for the real thing. <laughs> no, it's um I'm really glad you're enjoying it, Michael, and I hope the darkness um, pays for itself over the next couple of books. I'm looking on tvtropes.org, and I'm not finding the whole tempted by Satan trope in there yet. Hmm. So you may have to create one and, and invent your own trope name and see if it sticks, because okay. you're, you're right. That is one that is – it should be all over the place. Yeah, it is all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm thinking of, of Christ's journey in mm -hmm. the wilderness, um, you know, John Sheridan's little moment in, in, in uh, Zahadum. Mm -hmm. And he, he hit it twice, once talking to the shadow representative and then once talking to Lorian. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, that's um, it's something that's essential to characters. And actually, I personally think it's essential to adulthood, to growing up. And finding your own way in the world. At some point or another, you have to sit down and have a reckoning with yourself and uh, face what who you really are. the shadow self. Yeah. And face who you really are and uh, deal with that however that needs to be done. Continuing on with uh, Patty's <laughs> voluminous voicemail <laughs> or email. <clears throat> I've been enjoying all of the character developments and I'm hoping we'll hear more about Jade in the near future. Wish granted. I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around her going from bloodthirsty Cassie's sister to office minion and part-time artist. It's understandable, but I really want to know what was going through her head during the transition. For that matter, what's going through her head now? Well, <laughs> fortunately, not one of Cassie's bullets. Yeah. And a question about this whole Senator Shelley contest. Is it a front... Are you at writer's block and secretly using fan suggestions <laughs> to carry on the plot like the writers of Lost? <laughs> nice. N nice theory, but no. I know exactly what's going on with Senator Shelley, and I have Chris Lester here as a witness. I've yes, told him all of what's going on. And it's it's good stuff, folks, i got to say. Um, no, I, 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 what Shelley's up to will hopefully be a nice surprise, but... Um, well, you know, not in the happy, shiny way, but in the <laughs> yeah, like, dramatically satisfying way. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely holds together. Um, the uh, the the other thing about Jade, we learn a lot more about Jade in book two. Um, Jade has a lot to do in book two. One of the things you'll notice as the series progresses is that the ma the minor characters of earlier books will become major characters in later books. Um, and gradually the storylines, the, the focus will shift as the um, work of the revolution and the different storylines get handed from one generation to another. As the bodies pile up. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that too. My goodness, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> oh, yes, Chris, as our lovely Greg sing, you did a fabulous job with that and you're in trouble for books two and three, man. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. All right. Um... If so, you can use my suggestions to your heart's content, but any of my death threat ideas better get proper credit. Back <laughs> off. 
Now, since I know this email will at least be glanced at during my favorite podcaster's cabal, I'm going to take the opportunity to let you all know that you're doing a service to a lot of people that I'm not sure you're aware of. My husband is afflicted with a comparatively mild case of dyslexia. Not enough to keep him from three college degrees, but more than enough to discourage him from casual reading. There's a fair pile of books that he really wants to get through, but since it takes him a very long time to do so, he's usually too discouraged to even get started. But with podcast novels, he can enjoy the books, literally hear the author's voice in it, and spend time with me all for free. Hopefully, we're not the first to figure this out, and the universe of those with reading disorders or the sight impaired has been expanding steadily with each episode. In any event, karma points all around. Thank you. That, that actually has got me smiling a mile yeah, wide. That's definitely. very cool. Finally, your death threat for this feedback. Woohoo! I shall hack your modem and use your computer to write an email that will get you on the bad side of a traveling salesman voodoo priestess <laughs> <laughs> who decides to eradicate both your manhood and your literary genius by turning you into a cow. <laughs> By freak coincidence, or so it appears, she does this at a local cow auction where you are purchased by a goth performance artist who just received a scathing breakup email from his vegan girlfriend who felt that his art didn't mesh well with her job at PETA. He takes you home to set up a massive amount of video equipment, which he uses to broadcast his force-feeding you foie gras using a plunger to death over YouTube. Snuggles, Patty Heaney. <laughs> oh, Patty, we love you. Thank you. That was the coolest death threat yet, except for most of the other ones, too. They, these have all been incredibly inventive. Please keep them coming. I love them. They may show up as methods for characters to die in future books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hide now. <laughs> Just imagine what we could do with a foie gras stuffed cow in Down from Ten. I'm getting blank stares all around here. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to call it there for this one. This show went on for quite a while. There's a mountain of great feedback, so there'll be more coming soon. But right now i got to get to bed so that I can start cranking out episode 19 tomorrow and get it to you on time Thursday. So, until you hear from me next, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose, it's how you rig the game.